This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. At Ash Wednesday service, Brandon spoke about the changing geography of the scripture that we're experiencing. From last Sunday's mountaintop experience to today's journey into the wilderness, we're certainly seeing a shift in the topography of the word, if you will. But the above quote from the final verse in Matthew 3 refers to another piece of geography, the Jordan River, the site of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. The final words from God seem to echo throughout today's reading. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And you think about it, that should be the definitive identifier of who this person Jesus is. Yet the question of Jesus' identity hovers over the entire Gospel of Matthew. Folks in the Gospel constantly wonder just who this Jesus person is. The disciples on the storm-tossed boat say, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? John's letter from prison, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? The words of Judas' betrayal, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him. And even the taunts from the people as Jesus is dying on the cross, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, there's certainly a lot of space covered in the search for Jesus' true identity. And one would think, again, that God's opening words in Matthew 3 would have been enough. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. But of course they're not. And the devil in the wilderness knows all this, this all too well. The opening move of the tempter's gambit of deception traffics in the very question of Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now we've come to know these verses as the three temptations of Jesus. Some prefer to think of it as a single temptation with three variations. And this overarching or uber temptation all revolves around power. It's a time-tested trick. I mean, even in the garden, in today's reading from Genesis, we are Eve being tempted by power. The serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Power, or the illusion of power, and its cousin, control, are at the center of all temptation. And the first variation on this temptation on power might be called something like the temptation to attempt the miraculous. The devil cleverly opens with what might be seen as concern for the 40-day famished Jesus. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil wants Jesus to command a new reality, one where stones become bread. Maybe because the old reality, the one created by God and called good, is no longer, well, no longer good enough. And I imagine this temptation might sound almost feasible to Jesus, following his 40 days fast in the wilderness. But if he were to act upon it, might this little slip, this little slip to overcome an immediate inconvenience, yield larger unforeseen consequences? I mean, keep in mind that Adam's bite of the fruit in the garden carried enormous consequences for all humanity. 
I wonder how often do we wish for God to perform a miracle to allow us to overcome an immediate inconvenience when the inconvenience might be what we most need. It's Easter without Good Friday. The miraculous robs us of the basic goodness of God's creation. Now Jesus' second variation on the temptation, or the devil's second variation on the temptation of Jesus, the temptation to power might be called the temptation to the spectacle. The devil wants Jesus to force God's hand, to intervene in a self-inflicted test, to confirm that Jesus truly is the Son of God. As you know, we've been living in a celebrity-soaked culture for several decades now. We elevate our tech leaders, our gazillionaires, our media anointed. Some even want to make Jesus the uber celebrity, rising above all the others. But as Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't make it about you or anyone. Just make it about God. And the final variation on the temptation is probably the most obvious. The temptation to political power. The devil offers all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for Jesus' worship. Of course, it begs the question of whether they're the devils to give, but no mind here. See, in this third variation, it seems the devil's kind of running out of options. The temptation to earthly power is the most overt and is exactly what we'd expect the devil to do. He doesn't even question Jesus' identity this time like he did the other two. He doesn't open with, if you are the son of God. It's the devil in his least creative, in his most spot-on power play. Which isn't to say that it's not very tempting. The story of Christendom from Constantine on has been one of trying to exert worldly power, if not in the name of Jesus, then in the name of the religion, Christianity. And even today, folks in power, or those wanting to be in power, are quick to evoke Jesus' name in that effort. Citing the power of love, it forgets Jesus on the cross, the greatest act of weakness and of love, and yearns for a warrior messiah, ready to battle anyone who disagrees. But Paul's second letter to the Corinthians confirms in us Whenever I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Jesus joins us in weakness. As much as we'd like him to be all-powerful out there in the world, he meets us instead where we are. And that's a good thing. But instead, we want to skip over that frustrating but telling detail of Jesus' life, hanging on the cross in great agony on Good Friday. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. God's testament to the identity of Jesus should be enough, but it's not. The whole of the gospel speaks to that. The entire project of Christianity has turned on that troubling fact. Now, as we talked about in our annual meeting in January, Brandon and I are trying to elevate our appreciation and understanding of the importance of our baptism in our lives of faith. It is truly the pivotal, pivotal act upon which our faith can flourish. It is a rite of initiation that is filled with archetype and imagery, 
death and resurrection in the waters of the baptism. In our catechism, at the end of the, uh, the last page of the Book of Common Prayer, baptism is defined as the sacrament by which God adopts us as his children and makes us members of Christ's body. God adopts us as his children. So God's statement of Jesus' identity, this is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased, this statement, this pledge, this affirmation, it becomes ours as well in our baptism. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. We're united to Christ in our baptism as it echoes Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. We heard in Matthew 3. See, we too share identities as children of God, created by God and called good, rejoined to Christ in our baptism. And just as we saw in Jesus' temptation, after his baptism in this morning's gospel, the devil is constantly trying us, trying to get us to forget our identities, who we are. Now we may not share the same exact temptations that Jesus experienced, but the tempter is always trying to get us to doubt who we truly are, what we're made for. When we're overwhelmed by insecurity about not having enough, or not being enough, or not looking a certain way, it's a temptation. When we make judgments about strangers despite our ignorance, that's a temptation. When we're able to look away from those in need at the street, uh, at the street corner or in the parking lot, temptation. When we allow our anger or temple, our temper to rule our lives, temptation. When our addictions to wealth or power or even control also rule our lives, temptation. When we're so caught up in the trappings of our life that we lose sight of life itself, temptation. You see, our temptations are still all about power in one way, shape, or form. It's, it is the devil's favorite tool. It's just power disguised maybe as pride or vanity or selfishness. On the other hand, maybe as apathy or distraction and forgetfulness. All our ways we forget our true identity, our true selves, as beloved by God, in whom he is well pleased. Now we generally don't share Jesus' ability to overcome our temptations. So we slip, we fall. And then we repent. And that's why we have Lent. It's a time to engage the dark places in our lives, to come to them face to face, to name them, to understand them, and to ask for forgiveness. And this is not about guilt. That's too easy. It's about getting the freedom from control that our fears and insecurities have over each one of us. It's freedom from control that our fears and insecurities have over us. See, in those temptations and our reactions to them, we are forgetting our true identities as children of God called good, as adopted by God into the body of Christ, God's beloved in whom he's well pleased. Now, I've said before that Lent is the most countercultural time of the year. 
or maybe counterintuitive. It's, it's when our penitents in darkness are supposed to coexist with the blooming daffodils and dogwoods and flowering magnolias of springtime. When darkness fights with the green shoots of a returning spring. And each week it gets a little bit tougher and spring's abundance becomes more and more overwhelming. But today, this morning, this first Sunday in Lent, let's take the chance to remember our true selves as God sees us. Let's practice shedding our skins to times in the past and the present when we forgot our true identity. Let's cry out deeply for forgiveness, redemption, and absolution as in the waters of baptism. So let's use this Lent, these 40 days, to practice remembering and more importantly, being who we truly are and were made to be, God's beloved in whom he's well pleased. Amen. Amen.